0: Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 19th of July 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, the hope has paid off, Mike. I've been hoping for so long that uh, the government would do the right thing and We've been given our freedom back.
1: Uh, yes, absolutely. This is Freedom Day, uh, but not in Scotland, as you'll hear in a second. Uh, but let's have a look and see how the, uh, well, let's look at the Daily Mail just for the hell of it. This is Lockdown Day 483, as they uh, have on their top of their front page. Uh, it's not Freedom Day, it's Disaster Day. Businesses rage, it's self-isolating Boris, uh, as the great unlocking is marred by millions still at the mercy of pandemic. Uh, and demand testing system instead. Well, so is that what it's about? We are yes. going to say.
0: Well, I was going to say, let's not forget that, that top headline lockdown day 483. Yes. 483 days of complete and utter nonsense inflicted on the population. And we're only now starting to see people beginning to say, no, we're not having a having any more of this?
1: Um, So they're calling it Freedom Day. They're saying the lockdown's lifted, but at the same time, they've uh, ramped up the uh, number of so-called pings by the NHS Test and Trace app, which means, that, of course, in fact, it's still locked down for many, many people. Um, So nothing has uh, changed at all. Uh, And David, business is very upset about this. And uh, well, this is the FT headlines. Uh, FT headlines, a bit misleading. Delta variant sparks worker shortage across UK businesses. Uh, I'm not clear what the Delta variant has to do with it, because the Delta variant hasn't set the policy.
2: No, uh, the policy and the administration of the policy is what's happening here. Uh, It is ruled by experts and the experts' wonderful software systems, uh, which have served us so well. So the Delta variant of coronavirus, they write, is wreaking havoc in industry with more than 700 workers at the UK's largest car factory self-isolating, and business groups warning that some companies are missing 20% of their staff. Now, these are obviously people who are healthy. These are not people who are ill. These are people who are at home because the government has told them to be at home. Labour shortages have hit factory shops and warehouses with workers pinged by the NHS COVID app and told to self-isolate for 10 days if they've come into contact with an infected person. And of course, an infected person is also a new term. It means someone who has a positive test. It doesn't mean someone who has any symptoms. And of course, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't therefore qualify as a case.
1: Um, indeed. And so over the weekend, we had the complete nonsense of Boris uh, self-isolating or not self-isolating. He said, first of all, he wasn't going to self-isolate. Then he was going to self-isolate because, of course, Sajid Javid apparently tested positive. So the number is now 1.7 million. I think on Friday's news, we said it was 1.6 million. I think it's gone up over the weekend to 1.7 million people that are now self-isolating. And of course, the COVID app is uh, front and center of that issue. We'll come on to that in one second. But in the meantime, today being Freedom Day, uh, there has been, uh, there there was uh, a protest announced for today, no more lockdowns in Parliament Square. Um, so we have a little bit of video here. Now, this was taken um, earlier on today at about 11 o'clock, so not everybody by any means uh, was there uh, yet because it was uh, due to start at midday. Um, still a reasonable turnout nonetheless, Brian, and uh, the usual wide range of flags and other banners uh, appeared as the... Uh, as people started to gather. Um, and we'll see in a second uh, that the, there is a bit of a police presence, but most importantly, um, it looks like the uh, the traffic has been severely disrupted disrupted in, in London this morning. Yeah,
0: that was clearly the case. The traffic had been stopped on one side of the square, so I can imagine that uh, that was causing some reaction. Um, so, yes. Well, I was gonna just say, looking at the people, I know the weather's good, so they're all in t-shirts. But you just get an impression these are very calm, I'm going to use a a naval expression, well-turned-out people. So they're there, they are ready to say what they feel is wrong. They're obviously very friendly and relaxed. And this, of course, is the important thing, isn't it? Uh,
1: Indeed. Well, uh, as you just saw there, clearly some of the roads closed around Parliament uh, at the moment, at least in some directions. Uh, But uh, you're not allowed to see, apparently, that this is the case. Um, because if you go looking for the, uh, the uh, traffic cameras in London around Parliament Square at the moment, well, in fact, if you hit the play button, all you get is this gray squ- screen for a second. And it, uh, well, you can see that the length of the video clip there is 0.01 hours, I guess. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you're not allowed to see what's happening with the traffic around Parliament No, because we, you might we... see lots of people on there.
0: We've had emails um, saying that this was the case at the other large protests, that a lot of the traffic cameras were not publicly uh, available. So no, we don't want the truth coming out.
1: Uh, No, but look, don't worry uh, because the flu narrative uh, is coming back. Now, just to put this in a bit of context, let's remind everybody uh, what the situation is with flu. This is Scientific American um, from April this year. Uh, flu has disappeared worldwide during the COVID pandemic. The public health measures that slow the spread of the novel coronavirus work really well on influenza, said Unscientific American. Uh, and uh, well, there was a, a nice, here's a nice graph from Office for National Statistics showing uh, the number of weekly deaths. Um, and uh, this is deaths where disease was a, a contributing factor. This is including pneumonia, of course. Um, so this isn't really including uh, influenza. And it can't be, as you'll see in a second. But anyway, uh, the dotted green line, if anybody wants to know, is the deaths involving influenza and pneumonia, uh, five-year average. Um, let's have a look at Gavi. What's uh, Gavi saying? Well, the next pandemic, they ask, H5N1 and H7N9 influenza. Uh, and they were saying, if you remember, influenza type A is consistently circulating globally. The virus is particularly prevalent during winter during uh, due to the decreased humidity, and uh, closer contact between hosts, allowing easier transmission. Uh, But this was a bit confusing, and certainly uh, we don't have an influenza equivalent of corona, but if we did, they would be equally confused uh, because, of course, this is a typical graph from Public Health England, showing the prevalence of influenza uh, in the UK uh, since week 40 of 2020, running up to week 20 of uh, 2021. And as you can see, there's nothing for quite a number of weeks. Now, And this is perhaps what you might expect in the summer, but certainly the number of cases during the winter was extremely low, uh, but it's not just in the UK, it's globally, here's the World Health Organization, uh, their influenza laboratory surveillance information showing as near to zero as makes no difference. Um, the number of specimens positive for influenza by subtype from week 47 of 2019, right through until the end of 2020 on this particular graph uh, and if you pay attention to the uh, the scale on the left-hand side, you'll see at the peak uh, they were recording uh, something around fifty to 55,000 uh, specimens positive. Um, if we bring that a little bit more up to date, uh, then we find if we run from week uh, 11 of 2020 until week 9 of 2021, uh, we find that, well, influenza really went off a cliff, uh, Brian. It hasn't been there since uh, week 13 or so. Uh, But you can see that later on in the year, it started to come back in minutely small numbers. Uh, So we just zoom in on that a little bit to give you an impression of what was going on. Uh, Come back to Gavi for a second uh, and they're saying, and yet even though there are epidemics of different seasonal influenza strains every winter, the virus is widely perceived to be low risk by the majority of the public. Okay, so that's a very interesting statement, uh, as you'll see in a second. Now here is uh, a tweet from Tony Heller. Uh, This is from May. Uh, The flu killed 50 million people in 1918, 1919 with an average age of death of 28. By contrast, the average age of death from COVID-19 is 79. Well, in fact, I think it's closer to 83, 82, 83 with multiple comorbidities. So you're correct, COVID-19 does not affect the body like flu. But here's the thing, just in time for the government announcement, which we're gonna come on to in one second, uh, the World Health Organization has changed the scale of the flu graph. Uh, so here is the latest one: uh, global circulation of influenza viruses. And instead of twenty to thirty thousand on the left-hand scale, we're now zero to six hundred. Um, so that you get bigger bars, and it looks much more serious. Um, and just to remind you what the other graph looked like, uh, there we go. Uh, that's uh, in fact part on the on the right-hand side. There is part partly the same time period. So. Uh, They've changed the scale uh, so that you're not confused about how serious it is. Uh, There you go. Now, what is this government announcement? Well, as we uh, get onto that, let's have a look at what Sajid Javid was saying this morning, aside from I'm COVID positive. He said, uh, flu can be a serious illness and we want to build a wall of protection by immunizing a record number of people. Now, this wall of protection phrase is one that they've also used with COVID. Um, he went on to say, with the nation getting closer to normal life, we must learn to live with COVID 19 alongside other viruses. And we're offering the free flu jab to millions more people to help them uh, safe, keep them safe this winter. The phenomenal scale of the COVID 19 vaccination programme is a clear demonstration of the positive impact vaccination can make. And I encourage all those eligible. Uh, to get their flu jab when called forward. Um, So who are they intending to jab in the 2021-22 season, which starts in September? Uh, All children aged 2 and 3 on the 31st of August. All children in primary school and all children in secondary school, uh, those aged 6 months to under 50 years in clinical risk groups. Pregnant women, those aged 50 years and over. Uh, Unpaid carers, close contacts of immunosuppressed individuals, and frontline health and adult social care staff. So there we go. Now, this is a free vaccine, uh, of course, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't costing anything. It's costing lots uh, and it's the taxpayer that pays. So David, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Um, Of course, before COVID, uh, those of us who followed the um, alerts from things like the, v- the Verz database knew that the vaccine that was causing most harm was, in fact, the flu vaccine. Uh, like the COVID vaccine, it generates a, a lot of reports of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which results in paralysis. And. Um, And uh, again, we're seeing no balanced information coming out from the government. We're seeing no information that that, that weighs risks and benefits. We're seeing rhetoric that talks about walls of protection and other emotive terms. I find this quite concerning.
1: Um, But in the meantime, David, the uh, (laughs) Mail, making sure they get on this bandwagon, up to 60,000 people in England could die from flu this winter because so few people have immunity due to lockdowns. once report commissioned is, by Patrick
2: Vallance. This is this is this is the catch twenty two of the lockdown. This is so. Oh, I mean, I don't know what to laugh or cry. So, so we're doing we're doing scare scare headlines. Sixty thousand people could die from flu this winter. Uh, why? Because because of lockdown. Because lockdown means we haven't interacted with one another. So we've got no immunity because it's not been circulating gently during the summer when your immune system's healthy and it fights it off and it learns how to cope with it. Um, and then that, that leaves you in a better situation for the winter. Um, no, because of lockdown, um, we think that we're going to have a huge spike in flu this winter and 60,000 dead. So lockdown is going to cause 60,000 dead. But lockdown's a good thing. And what's the solution to the sixty thousand dead? More lockdown. we're going to we're going to have masking and social distancing, which is lockdown. Um, and we are going to use that as a solution to the problem which it has itself allegedly caused. Is this a catch twenty two? Is this uh, simply mocking the public? I'm not sure.
1: Um I think it's simply mocking the public uh, and their ignorance of uh, how the immune system works. Uh, because the suggestion here is that the immune system has completely forgotten about uh, a, a virus which has been circulating for how many years? But we've completely forgotten about it in 14 months. Uh, and uh, and the only way to remind the immune system about it is to get uh, the vaccine, um, because there is no such thing as long-term immunity to anything. David?
2: There isn't. Um, now, have we, got, is, uh, have we got the Jason Leach um, follow-up for that? We next, do indeed. Perhaps. Uh, now this is this is a, another piece of wonderful uh, explanation from Jason Leach, the uh, National Clinical Director in Scotland. Um, now, now he was asked to explain why Scotland topped the World Health Organization virus hotspot list, number one in the world. What a what a privilege! Now this is this is obviously based on the wise um, guidance of Nicola Sturgeon and her team. Uh, She has has carefully steered Scotland to the number one position of the worst virus hotspot in the world. And when asked why, Jason Leach said, well, it's lack of natural immunity. Because the Scots have been so so obedient and and followed lockdown and put their masks on, um, they have no natural immunity to uh, COVID. And therefore, um, that's why it's so bad. And of course, the solution is, again, uh, more lockdown because that somehow makes sense the degree of uh, incomprehensibility of 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 a, of a complete lack of any logical connection in the story that they themselves are putting forward is very striking
0: i'll just come in there david it yes there's there's it's apparently illogical it doesn't make sense unless you start to think that the actions by the government are actually malicious and designed to cause harm in the population. If you put that in as a as a start to the argument, to the discussion, then so many of these things then make sense. Why would you have a confused population? Because you don't want, to under, you don't want them to understand what's happening to them. We know from many scientists speaking out that vaccinations uh, Certainly, in the initial phase, as suppressing the immune system. So, but the vaccines are being pushed, more lockdowns being pushed. If the agenda is to harm the population, all these things make sense.
2: This is a very good point. This is: is it a cock up, or or is it is it a conspiracy? This is the the question we're, we're so often faced with. Um, I share your view that I don't believe that the the powers that be are as stupid as this would suggest they are. Therefore, there must be another agenda happening. Um, we get sight of glimpses of that agenda, spy b minutes and things like this, um, and we get sight of some of the, the outcomes and their decision-making, but it doesn't make any sense for the reason that they state they are they are motivated to, to act in this way. It does make sense if we're talking about uh, a removal of long-established rights uh, of closing down travel, of closing down society in some ways, and making us all much less free. If that were the um, the agenda, then the the decisions we're seeing here would make sense.
1: So. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on to the NHS app then, uh, because uh, fantastic news this morning. Uh, Fifty five million people have refused to download the app so far. Um, And uh, that means that, uh, of course, although there are now uh, 1.6, 1.7 million people uh, isolating because of test and trace, um, it certainly, it must be among the 10 million or so that have. Um, So, well, maybe they've only got themselves to blame. But nonetheless, uh, the government is very excited about this news. Um, The apps COVID-19 vaccination status service allows users to easily show their proof of vaccine, uh, which will help people to travel abroad. Start returning to workplaces, which actually it isn't, uh, and uh, attend large-scale events as we cautiously proceed with the roadmap. Um, over thirty countries now recognise the COVID Pass, uh, that's in part of the, which is part of this app, uh, and users have also benefited from easier access to NHS services. So let's just uh, bring this up to date. The positive impact of this increase in downloads is potentially life-saving as over 90,500 people have registered their organ donation preference by the app since the 17th of May. Uh, this is over five times more than the month of April. Well, that's uh, actually <laughs> amazing because I thought we were in an opt-in, or, sorry, an opt-out situation at the moment. So the presumption was that you were opted in, but anyway.
0: Well, I was just going to say it's amazing that it's potentially life saving with people giving their organs.
1: Yes. Uh, But then uh, it goes on to say users are also benefiting from easier access to NHS services during May and June. Over 1.2 million people, uh, sorry, 1.2 million repeat prescriptions were ordered and over 103,900 GP appointments booked via the app saving patients and clinicians valuable time. So that's fantastic. So get the app. Uh, 55 million people have so far said no, um, and uh, but the government really wants you to get the app, uh, but perhaps we should look at it in the context of this. And it is a shame that occasionally we have to say the Guardian does a good job, but in this case they have. Uh, huge data leak shatters the lie that innocent need not fear surveillance. So what are they saying? Billion, billions of people are inseparable from their phones. Uh, Their devices are within reach and earshot for almost every daily experience from the most mundane to the most intimate. Few pause to think that their phones can be transformed into surveillance devices with someone one thousands of miles away, silently extracting their messages, photos and location, uh, activating their microphone to record them in real time. Such are the capabilities of Pegasus, the spyware manufactured by NSO Group, an Israeli company, uh, the Israeli prefer of weapons and mass surveillance, yet in the coming days the Guardian will be revealing the identities of many innocent people who have been identified as candidates for possible surveillance by NSO clients in a massive leak of data. Uh, without forensics on their devices, we cannot know whether governments uh, successfully targeted these people, uh, but the presence of their names on the list indicates lengths to which governments may go to spy on critics, uh, rivals, and opponents. Um, so let's just have a look at what... Uh, they're saying here, these are the main attack vectors uh, through SMS, through WhatsApp, through iMessage, but also the possibility of th- through some kind of unknown vulnerability in the phone. Um, and uh, once installed Pegasus can theoretically harvest any data from any device uh, and transmit it back to the attacker and that includes SMS, emails, uh, WhatsApp chats, uh, photos and videos. Act- uh, they can activate the microphone and uh, they can activate the camera, record calls, GPS data, uh, calendar and contacts books. Now, there's a uh, few caveats on this or a few things to note on this. Uh, many people think that WhatsApp, Telegram and so on are end-to-end encrypted, which they are. But of course, if the government can get access to one end uh, of the uh, the conversation, uh, then they can see the contents unencrypted. So if they can get control of your phone, then they can see what you're typing in. They can see what responses you're receiving. Um, and uh, that has always been the much more likely attack vector than than to have some kind of man-in-the-middle attack or some kind of backdoor uh, onto uh, WhatsApp's encryption or Telegram's encryption uh, and so on. Now on the iPhone, uh, iMessage is certainly vulnerable to this, uh, but uh, uh, of course iPhone, Apple in recent uh, months has uh, made it obvious when your microphone is switched on by p- switching on a a, a, a notification that that has happened. Uh, Whether this can get round that, I don't know. But anyway, the UK uh, said the Guardian in the UK, the whistleblowers detractors uh, argued breezily that spying was what intelligence agencies were supposed to do. We're we're assured that innocent citizens in the Five Eyes Alliance of Intelligence Powers comprising Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK and the US were safe from abuse. Some invoked the dictum, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to fear. Uh, The Pegasus Project is likely to put an end to any such wishful thinking. Law-abiding people, including citizens and residents of democracies such as the UK, such as editors-in-chief of leading newspapers, are not immune from unwarranted surveillance. uh, And Western countries do not have a monopoly on the most invasive surveillance technologies. We're entering a new surveillance era, and unless protection is put in place, none of us should be is safe but anyway you know it's not just editors-in-chief it could be anybody and there's still some questions to be answered over uh, the ability of the advertising state standards agency uh, authority sorry to uh, uh to link a private email address with the uk column uh, in my case so we'll find out what's going on there in the next few days i hope it here is uh NSO Group, Cyber Intelligence for Global Security and Stability, NSO creates technology that helps governments agencies pre- uh, prevent and investigate terrorism and crime uh, to save thousands of lives around the globe. Uh, so here are their customers, the law enforcement entities, the military intelligence agencies, they've got 60 customers in 40 countries. Uh, but uh, we don't have to worry because five customers were disconnected from the system following an investigation of misuse since 2016. Uh, and five customers we discontinued engagements with due to concerns regarding human rights. And so that was an estimated loss of revenue for this Israeli company of $100 million. So that's really impressive that they've done that. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, they, of course, exactly the same way that the British government is attempting to use uh, the same issue to justify the uh, online safety bill and the absolutely draconian censorship that that's gonna bring in, This company is attempting to justify its activities in the same way. So uh, this is a solutions impact testimonial. During COVID-19, NSO's tools were essential for the exposure and capture of a ring of pedophiles. So, David, um, is it any wonder that people don't want to download the NHS app uh, because you're inviting government onto your phone? Um, Now, in this case, this is taking it a step further because they're coming on without invitation. But why would anybody want to do that?
2: Well, quite Uh, a couple of comments on on that last segment. Firstly, if we've got something like 10 million people signed up for the app and they've got 1.6, 1.7 million actually pinged and self-isolating. That's that's one in six if everyone had signed up, it would be 11 million. This is, this is incredible. It's crazy. And, and the other thing is, uh, yes, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear, Joseph Goebbels, 1933.
1: Yes, indeed. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, and there are options to join us there. We very much need your support and that would be much appreciated. Indeed, um, and uh, also share our material on the various platforms. We're on Brand YouTube, on Rumble, on Bitshoot, on Odyssey, uh, and uh, on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, and just a brief reminder that uh, although there's a, a demonstration happening in London today, uh, there's another big one happening on Saturday, the twenty fourth, which is coming Saturday at one pm, worldwide rally Rally for Freedom, World uh, Ivermectin Day. It's in Central London. Details to be announced. Um, And uh, details will be announced on the Stand Up X website, I'm sure, in due course.
0: Yeah, and massive support required for these things.
1: Yes. Um, Okay. now, Boris and masks.
0: Well, I just thought this was an important um, little clip here of Boris talking about, uh, well, talking about the rules as he understands them. So this is the BBC. And then Chris Witte chips in. Let's just have a listen to what these two wonderful gentlemen
3: have to say personally wear a mask I think that uh, as I said earlier on it will depend on the uh, on the circumstances and I, I, I think that what we're trying to do is move from a government universal government diktat to uh, relying on people's personal responsibility and clearly there's a, a big difference between uh, traveling on a crowded tube train and sitting uh, late at night in a, uh, a you know a, a virtually empty uh, wear uh, a mask under three. Uh, situations Uh, and I would do so uh, particularly uh, at this point when the epidemic
0: is clearly significant and rising Uh, and the first is in any situation which was indoors and crowded or indoors with close proximity to other people. Uh, And that is because masks help protect other people. This is a thing we do to protect other people, as it's by far its principal aim. The second situation
2: I do it is if I was required to, uh, by any competent authority, I would have no hesitation about doing that. uh, And I would consider that was a reasonable and sensible thing if they had good reasons to do that.
0: And the third reason is if someone else was uncomfortable if I did not wear a mask, as a point of common courtesy, of course I would wear a mask. So under all those circumstances, I would do so. Uh, Well, I I just found this one um, utterly brilliant because what is Boris doing? He's saying that uh, we're going to get rid of universal government diktat and it's going to come down to personal responsibility. So this is spreading the confusion. Uh, Nobody knows what the rules are. People are going to interpret the rules differently. Um, He's selling that as personal responsibility, but actually what it's going to cause is confusion. He knows that the confusion is going to cause stress. And this is going to make the population as a whole more susceptible to the next layer of applied behavioral psychology, which, of course, um, his government and earlier British governments have boasted that they're world leaders in using applied psychology to get a political agenda across. So those few words from Boris Johnson, I think, were very significant. And then they get reinforced by Chris Whitty uh, because he said he'd certainly wear a mask in a crowded room. Um, And it's all about protecting others. Now, what that really means is if you don't wear a mask, you are a bad person and the hate and the venom is going to be focused back on you. So this is completely in line with the SAGE uh, BIT team, Behavioural Insights team policy, where they said back last year they were going to make people more stressed, more anxious, more frightened. And Chris Whitty is doing that again. And I'll just add that it's now coming to light that Chris Whitty himself has been heavily involved in behavioral insights, this use of applied psychology for political purposes. And indeed he's been involved um, in this uh, with the French meetings with the French. And I thought, Mike, how incredible this takes us all the way back to 2010, 2011, when UK column warned that the then British government was meeting with Uh, top level representatives of Sarkozy's office, uh, who were trained in the application of political uh, behavioral sciences. David, I can see you twitching on screen. Um, This is pretty obvious when you understand what these people are doing. They're not helping the population, they are attacking the population.
2: Well, this is level two, Brian. Right, level one was simply bullying and threatening people and telling them what to do, and you know, arresting people for having a coffee or um, something that was deemed to be a picnic or walking walking alone in a secluded spot. We've been through that. This is level two. Level two, you see, you have to be good, like the wise overlords. So here's here's Boris and Chris Whitty explaining what goodness is in in in, in the new in the new normal, and uh, you will be invited to uh, be good like them. Um, And you'll be allowed a certain amount of leeway, but also you're being told that you have to comply with competent authority. The idea that there's such a thing in Britain is, is I think, quite funny now, but uh, they, they claim there is. Um, and common courtesy, but common courtesy obviously only works one way if you don't like mask wearing and you find people who are masked and cover their faces maybe threatening. Common courtesy doesn't work that way. Only one direction. And the idea that, that Chris Whitty, who knows that there is no such thing as asymptomatic transmission. Uh, who knows that if you've not got symptoms, you're not any threat to anyone else? Is saying that you have to mask in order to protect other people. What he's essentially saying is, if you are loaded with COVID and you are breathing out huge numbers um, of of, uh, of of virus uh, particles and you're a threat to people, then do go into crowded rooms but wear a mask. That seems to be his message, which is, of course, insane. Um, so yeah, you're you're meant to you're meant to emulate these people. I think. Uh, this is this is not a move towards liberty. This is a move towards totalitarianism.
1: Um, okay, well, let's uh, put the latest uh, vaccine analysis overview um, on screen. This is on yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. Um, this report is the latest statistics from uh, MHRA, uh, and they're showing 317,025 uh, total reports with uh, 1.59 million Total reactions and 1,470 deaths. So that's uh, 30 more deaths on the yellow card system from uh, from last week. Um, but of course, this is starting to slow down because, well, the vaccination program is starting to slow down. There aren't any more, uh, you know, basically everybody's been done so far that's going to be done. And uh, it's uh, therefore, you know, there, there are no uh, more uh, or at least relatively few uh, new reactions appearing on the database. Now, uh, the thing that concerns me, perhaps, is uh, most of course, is that it's impossible to know um, exactly what uh, long-term effects are there are going to be on this because the yellow card system, David, doesn't measure long-term effects. And as the long as peri- as time goes on from the point of vaccination, of course, the likelihood of uh, as, you know associating some kind of illness or some kind of Issue that somebody has with the vaccination process itself reduces?
2: Indeed, it does. Um, And the long term effects are one of the things which more and more medics across the globe are highlighting serious concerns. They're outlining causal links to long term health effects. They're outlining measured long term health effects of seeing in their patients. And the scale of this. We don't know, but it seems to be to be vast.
1: Yes. Well, this uh, moves on then to Dr. Hoffa.
2: Well, it does. Now, this is um, a very um, a, a very important interview. So, I, I encourage people to seek this out. This is Dr. Charles Hoffa, who's um, practicing in Canada, and uh, he's spoken out about the harm he's seen. Uh, Caused to his patients. He, he's injected 900 people, uh, mostly um, indigenous uh, eth- ethnicities um, for the, the area he works in. Uh, he reports that um, two people went into anaphylactic shock, one person died, several others have suffered what appear to be permanent disabilities. Uh, he relates how one of his patients is in so much pain now that she prefers death to life. And he contrasts this with the fact that no one in the community had died or become permanently disabled due to COVID in the past year. Um, And he he has written to uh, authorities about this. I've taken two little clips from the letter. One comment notes, he he writes, I realise that every medical therapy has a risk-benefit ratio and that serious disease calls for serious medicine. But we now know that the recovery rate of COVID 19 is similar to the seasonal flu in every age category. Furthermore, it's well known that side effects following the second shot are significantly worse than the first. So the worst is still to come. So, my question is this is it medically ethical to continue this vaccine rollout in view of the severity of these life altering side effects after just the first shot? In Lytton, um, British Columbia, we have had an instance of one in 225 of severe life-altering side effects from this experimental gene modification therapy. So this is the question he's asking. And of course, the response has been to seek to silence him and um, to remove him from some of his posts and um, to uh, otherwise ignore the message he's putting out. But the message is powerful. And he's talking about uh, blood tests on people that have been vaccinated. And he's found evidence of recent blood clots in 62% of those tested. This is extremely concerning.
1: Yes, okay, and that leads us on, I believe, to Senator Johnson.
2: Yes, again, Senator Johnson from the United States, um, who is an accountant, so he's happy looking at numbers, and he's looking at the numbers, and he's, he's, he's finding things to be concerned about. Uh, the response is not reassuring.
3: This, this is the CDC's Early warning system on vaccines. It's been up and operating for 31 years. It's called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Do we have this up yet? It's coming up. Go full screen. So, what the first chart shows you is just a bar chart showing. The, what the VAERS has reported in COVID deaths since the vaccine first began, began administered. And, and as Dr. Risch and Dr. Ladapo pointed out, there's, there are these reactions that are clustering around the first few days of receiving the vaccine. I think you heard that from the group here. Their symptoms started almost immediately. But in terms of deaths, uh, on day zero, the day you get the vaccine, 619 people have died and it's been reported to the VAERS system. On the day after, the the day one, 764. On day two, 353 people. And then it tapers off. Now, I presented this to Dr. Collins, the head of the NIH, a couple months ago. I think this is when total VAERS deaths were something like 3,000. His reaction was more than disappointing. It was just basically, well, you know, Senator, people die. Uh, we've looked into these, and except for back then, I think there were six cases of, of childbearing age women dying from blood clots. That's the, only, that's the only thing that we've connected to these vaccines. Okay, again, none of us are medical doctors. None of us are medical researchers. We're not pretending to be, but we can see the publicly available information. We can look at the numbers. We can take a look at this data and go, this is concerning. This ought to be taken seriously. This ought to be looked at.
1: David, the first thing that uh, springs to my mind is uh, the VAERS uh, data is at least able to show that information. The MHRA's data, we have no way of knowing at what point uh, deaths occurred uh, because that data is not made available by the MHRA. So we can't say that X number of people died one day following uh, vaccination.
2: This is very true. Uh, perhaps uh, some of our audience would like to write to the MHRA and encourage them to release this information. It does seem vital. And the, the tendency to, in the UK, conceal the information and in America to simply not react um, is not respond to what is clearly concerning. We talked last week about uh, the, the, is- the issue of um, spontaneous abortion miscarriage. Uh, in women who were pregnant in, uh, in the first trimester and who received the vaccination, and it's just been ignored. Um, and I, I feel that at some future point we're going to have uh, some inquiry into this. That's going to say, well, the system was blinking red, and and by a whole series of unfortunate events, we simply we simply ignored the warnings that were there. Um, th- this is not good enough. The, there are many people speaking out, both qualified uh, medically, and and simply concerned, and looking at the figures and responding rationally to the information that's, that's at hand, and there's more than enough people speaking out, there is no excuse for people like uh, the, 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 uh, uh, Ms. Reins, the, the head of the MHRA, of, of pretending not to be aware of the issues, of continuing not to investigate the areas of sizable concern and of not communicating to the public the real risks involved.
1: Um, And I've seen uh, uh, this slide doing the rounds this morning, so this seems to have come from a presentation given by the uh, Food and Drug Administration.
2: Yes, it it seems to be genuine, uh, certainly circulating on the internet, and it's a list of uh, side effects of COVID-19 vaccines, Guillain-Barre syndrome, Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, transverse myelitis, encephalomyelitis, uh, convulsion, seizure, stroke, uh, anaphylactic shock, acute my- uh, myocardial infraction, and on it goes, um, including death, including pregnancy and birth outcomes. Um, this is the level of severity that uh, we're talking about where people are not killed. They they are uh, far too often suffering life-altering uh, medical problems.
1: Now, I, miss, I may have misunderstood it, but I did see the video clip that that came from, and uh, was, uh, the guy was giving a presentation. He seemed to uh, only show that slide for a fraction of a second, and it did seem to be that he hadn't intended to do so.
2: Well, it may be uh, though. The, the whole um, presentation seems to be available now on the internet, um, but it's it's quite a it's quite a striking list. Yes.
1: Okay, so where does that bring us? I think this is still this this comes to yeah. the
2: BM, yeah. This BMJ here. Um, again, we're seeing more and more uh, medics speak out. Um, the The tendency initially was anyone who spoke out was threatened and was sacked or was found himself without a job uh, and was intimidated. But we seem to be seeing some people overcome this um, and speak out. Um, in official um, uh, organs like the BM, the the, the British Medical Journal. So this is an opinion piece. COVID-19 vaccines for children. Hypothetical benefits to adults do not outweigh risks to children. There's no need to rush to vaccinate children against COVID-19. The vast majority stands little to benefit and it is ethically dubious to pursue a hypothetical protection of adults while exposing children to harms known and unknown. This is a very powerful statement to be in a a journal like the BMJ. Um, Still ignored by the politicians, but one wonders how much longer uh, calls like this can be ignored by Mr Whitty, Mr Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. Ah,
1: good question.
0: Well, that's a very good question, and uh, you raised a number of very good questions about how the MHRA performs. So, just like to take people back to uh, the tenth of May when the UK column put out uh, the details of this email that we'd sent uh, to Sarah Branch, who's the uh, uh, head of um, of uh, essentially vaccine safety, and. Uh, We came in uh, with the basic facts um, that uh, to date, as as of the run date of the 29th of April 2021, this is to do with the yellow card system, there had been the figures that we've got on screen. So the the data sum was 757,564 COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions, and at that stage, 1,102 fatalities. And uh, we went on and basically we asked her to uh, talk about what the MHRA was doing. Uh, I'd called the yellow card helpline. I'd said that I'd been able to establish what, if any, formal investigations MHRA is conducting concerning the immense number of vaccine adverse reactions. And uh, uh, this was the formal question that I ended the email with. Due diligence, as MHRA Director of Vigilance and Risk Management of Medicines, what due diligence action actions have you taken, and indeed is MHRA taking to fully investigate those uh, vaccine adverse reactions and deaths logged thus far, so as to warn and fully protect the public from further future harm, from known minor serious and fatal COVID-19 vaccine adverse reactions of the type, but not limited to those recorded to date by MHRA. So that was sent to the lady herself in person. And uh, the result was we got this response. It was an automatic automatic reply. But basically it says that they'd aim to provide a response within seven working days. Um, but it could take longer it could take 10 working days uh, so our comment on the news at the time was never mind the 750,000 adverse reactions of the 1100 deaths we'll get back to you in 10 days possibly longer well it was in fact a lot longer and uh, the point of this is that on the 14th of july this year we actually received a response to that email to sarah branch so Uh, This is the full reply. Uh, We've got quite a text. Uh, Let's have a little look at uh, what uh, Sarah Branch had to say so we can bring this up on the screen. So uh, if I summarize this a little bit, we've got many paragraphs where Sarah Branch is saying what the MHRA claims to do. She doesn't actually give any detailed facts or uh, statistical evidence or the uh, the, uh, evidence of reports this is claims of what they do. So it starts with the MHRA's role is to continually monitor safety of medicines and vaccines during widespread use. And we have in place a quote proactive strategy to do this for COVID-19 vaccines. Now, if you follow that through, it will simply take you back through the government system where the government says what what it claims to be doing certain things, but it never actually provides you any evidence. So this is a sort of revolving door. Through this strategy, we we are able to rapidly detect, confirm, and quantify any new risks and weigh these against the expected benefits. We can then take any necessary action to minimize risk to individuals. We also work closely with our public health partners. And it says that vaccination and surveillance of large population means that by chance, some people will experience and report a new illness or event in the days and weeks after vaccination. Now that's basically getting at uh, what uh, you were pointing out, David. Um, We've suddenly got deaths happening. They were American statistics a few days after vaccination, but the British take on this is it's all by chance. A high proportion of people vaccinated early in the vaccination campaign were very elderly and or had pre-existing medical conditions older age and chronic underlying illnesses make it more likely that coincidental adverse events will occur, especially given the millions of people vaccinated. So it's by chance, and it's also by the fact that uh, uh, we're dealing with elderly people, uh, many of whom have got other conditions. But this uh, second paragraph here ends by saying, the MHRA reviews individual fatal reports The majority of these reports received with the COVID-19 vaccines have been in elderly people or people with significant underlying illness. And it says, please be reassured that the MHRA takes all reports of adverse reactions with the utmost seriousness, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But it says that sometimes there's a delay between the MHRA sending the request for follow-up information to allow for time for a post-mortem to be carried out and the results to become available. But uh, if I can just bring, come back to you, David, of course, those post-mortems were not being carried out and were certainly not being looked at by the MHRA. Indeed, we've got cases of families having to, pr- to prompt the MHRA to get involved in cases where people have died and or been seriously harmed by the vaccine. So the language here is disingenuous, misleading, deliberately
2: confusing? Well, the line is trust us. Right, we've looked at it. There's nothing to see here. Move along. Trust us. Well, Where's the study? I mean, this is the biggest loss of life ever due to vaccine, a vaccine riot. The, the Vera system is showing a similar number of deaths now from six months of COVID vaccine to the number of deaths recorded on that system in the preceding 31 years. This this requires more than, trust us, we've looked at it, it's fine. This requires analysis. This requires detail. This requires a thorough statistical analysis in public for public discussion, examined by the third estate, remember them, fourth estate, examined by their politicians, examined by the public and open to scrutiny. Trust us doesn't cut, doesn't cut it.
0: Uh, it certainly doesn't. And let's look at the second uh, page of her response. We blow this up on the screen so we can see it. It says that once reports are received, we look at each individual adverse drug reaction report to individually assess each case together with additional sources of evidence by a team of safety experts. Additionally, we apply statistical techniques. Um, it goes on this uh, this is this aims to account for factors such as coincidental illness. We supplement this form of safety monitoring with other epidemiology studies, including analysis of data on national vaccine usage anonymized. This is padding it is it is padding it is designed to give you the feeling that something is being done when in fact, there is no evidence whatsoever to support that what they're doing here is ultimately producing results to protect the public.
1: Well, that might be the case, Brian, but in that one paragraph, there are several opportunities for freedom of information inquiry. And I su- suggest very strongly that some people might want to take that up. Uh, th- that they are, sh- If they are not willing to publish that data voluntarily, then that data needs to come out.
0: Indeed, and of course you can freeze the screen. Let's just... Uh, follow on through. Uh, what does it end with? Uh, well, well, sorry, first of all, it's talking about the yellow cards there. We're going to come on to those in a minute. But it says patient safety is our highest priority and vaccines are the best way to protect people from COVID-19. How can you possibly make that statement if you have not done the analysis into what the adverse effects of the vaccines are? So I've got to say that uh, Dr. Sarah Branch, I think has been very, very um, skillful in crafting this, uh, this reply. I believe that this is a classic fob-off because she knows that if the public start asking the real questions about what our organization is doing, they're gonna be shocked to discover they're doing nothing to protect the public and everything to protect the pharmaceutical companies. And after that uh, reply, let's remind ourselves as to what the MHRA did in order to deceive the public after it had stated that uh, only 10% of serious reactions or between two and 4% of non-serious reactions are ever reported to the yellow card system. That's not our words, that's the words of the MHRA. But what they then did is went back into that uh, posted article online and inserted this paragraph to say, Oh, well, the fact that only 10% of the adverse reactions get reported, that's only for other drugs. That's not for vaccines. When we know for a fact that yellow card vaccine adverse effects are not being reported. So again, this was uh, more misleading information by the MHRA. And uh, let's put the lady on screen. Here she is, Dr. Sarah Branch. Now, the government says she's got a strong scientific track record and brings a wealth of regulatory experience to the director role. And the bit I paid attention to is it then went on to say, in particular, Sarah's built a strong paediatric unit and over the last 10 years has helped to deliver more authorised medicines for children. So is that indicative that there's more stuff coming? She doesn't provide any factual evidence whatsoever to demonstrate what the MHRA is doing to protect the public. Now, let's follow that up by another reply that was kindly sent into the uh, UK column. And this one's come from June Rain. It's signed, from a, uh, f- signed by June Rain herself with a wedding signature, which is very unusual. But there can be no doubting where these words have come from. It's the lady herself. So let's have a look at this one. Um, So we're talking about the approval of Pfizer biotech COVID-19 vaccinations on the 2nd of December 2020 for people aged 16 years over. Since then, substantial experience has been gathered on effectiveness and safety. The results of randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials in over 2,000 children aged 12 to 15. And how many children are they planning to vaccinate, Mike? Millions, millions of children, but we've tested it on 2,000. In fact, it's less than 2,000, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, but basically, the data, it says that the data on the safety of the vaccine in the 12 to 15 year olds has also been reviewed carefully. Uh, no new adverse events were identified, and the safety data in adolescents was comparable with that seen in young adults. I think this is very clever wording because it says no new. It's not saying there isn't any. It says there's no new. And if we follow this through, it goes on to say that they've sought independent advice from the Commission on Human Medicines and its Paediatric Medicines Expert Advisory Group. And, uh, it ends by saying there's a broad range of considerations to take into account which go beyond the regulatory role and remit of the MHRA. Uh, What that's really saying is don't blame us the regulator it's the government and uh, this was uh, the last part of the letter again it says we've got in place a program of proactive surveillance to monitor medium and long-term safety profile. We note the ethical debate around the use of any vaccine or medicine in the paediatric population, while evidence on the benefit risk profile is, quote, still accumulating. So we're admitting here under this lady's signature that they have not got the safety data on the children, but they're going ahead with the vaccination program. So I've said it's MHRA word soup and claims but what about um, her single piece of documentary evidence? There was one report mentioned in this reply from June Rain, and here it is. It's the New England Journal of Medicine, the safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy of the BNT162B2 COVID vaccine in adolescents. This is the key text, Uh, but I was interested in this. As has been found in other age groups, Uh, BNT162B2 had a favorable safety and side effect profile with mainly transient mild to moderate reactogenicity. But if we go down a bit, it says there were no vaccine-related serious adverse events and few overall severe adverse effects. But now we can see that out of the Uh, 2,000-odd children, 2,260, it was only 1,100 that received the vaccine, and yet we're talking about severe adverse effects. And if we look at the conclusion, um, it's a favorable safety profile, produced a greater immune response than in young adults, and was highly effective. But whose trial is this? This isn't MHRA. Undertake. It's
1: not an independent uh, university trial or s- scientific trial.
0: But no, this is, this is the drug companies themselves testing their own, um, their own pharmaceutical product, saying that it's safe while failing to declare how many of the children had serious adverse effects. So this is the lady who is prepared to push this type of disgraceful material out to the public. Um, We quoted her saying this a couple of months ago, the suspected reactions described in this report, she's talking about yellow card data, are not proven side effects of COVID vaccines, but they're kept on record in case any later do turn out to be linked. So we have to say again, where is the evidence, Dr. Rain, to back up your claim that vaccines are safe when even the uh, Pfizer report that we've just shown on screen is demonstrating that children are suffering serious adverse effects.
2: Uh, David, briefly, uh, we covered. Uh, I think it was last week um, the uh, interview that Tucker Carlson had with uh, a mother and child uh, who had uh, the child had volunteered for the Pfizer trial. Uh, the child was uh, incapacitated, uh, was in a wheelchair, and was being fed through a tube in her nose. Um, that was presumably one of the serious um, effects that, that, that were recorded here. And if there's only a thousand children actually given the vaccine, is the MHRA uh, telling us that one in a thousand of our children are going to end up in that condition?
1: Um, well, if that's a serious uh, reaction, what's a severe reaction? David, that would be my question because they denied that there were any severe reactions.
2: Well, quite. I mean, that was that. I would, I would characterize that as 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 totally life-altering. I mean, this is a this is a crisis for a family. How is how is that not severe?
1: So, anyway, let's have a look at what the BBC is up to then with respect to vaccine and children. Uh, so, they published this. This is from BBC London. Uh, COVID vaccine hire young people responding to the job, and they had a young guy uh, presenting the information, but they. Started off with a couple of quotes from uh, a couple of ladies, uh, young, uh, I guess, in their teenage years. Uh, it was just a natural decision for one to get the vaccine. Uh, and the other one said it was the only way that they could see out of the pandemic. So, anyway, uh, here's the journalist, Jimmy Moreland. Uh, he came down from London to Eastbourne to visit his grandparents, uh, first time in a very long time, uh, he said. Um, but uh, he was very impressed because uh, Uh, 56% of 18 to 24 year olds in England have already received their first dose. Uh, And so he's looking forward to younger people uh, being able to access their first dose as well. Um, And uh, well, he asked a question um, because he was taking questions from apparently the public. Um, And the question was, why would you take an experimental vaccine? Uh, And uh, the lady he was speaking to was Professor Beata from, who's a vaccine expert, they said. Um, And uh, Beata seemed to say they're not, and she didn't seem to say it, she did say it, they're not really experimental now uh, because they've been fully approved. Uh, So this was the case. This is what the BBC presented. Uh, Now, if you remember, uh, the UK column in the past has been uh, criticized for not fact-checking certain things uh, by fact-checkers. And of course, when we find that. When we look at how they criticise our facts, we find that they're wrong. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is here, the BBC doesn't seem to have fact-checked this statement before it went out. Let's just remind ourselves exactly what the situation is with the vaccines in this country. So this is published in August 2020. It was the consultation document on changes to human medicine regulations to support the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. And it said this. Uh, COVID-19 is the biggest threat this country has faced in peacetime history, really, uh, which is why the UK government is working to a scientifically led, step-by-step action plan for tackling the pandemic, taking the right measures at the right time. Effective COVID-19 vaccines will be the best way to deal with the pandemic. It's amazing how the language and the rhetoric here is seen in those MHRA letters that uh, you received, Brian. Um, But anyway, it goes on, the preferred route to enable deployment of a new vaccine for COVID-19 is through the usual marketing authorization, brackets, product licensing process. Uh, But a temporary authorization of the supply of an unlicensed vaccine could be given by the UK's licensing authority under regulation 174 of the human medicines regulations. Uh, A COVID-19 vaccine would only be authorized in this way. If the UK's licensing authority was satisfied, there is sufficient evidence to demonstrate the safety, quality and efficacy of the vaccine. Unlicensed does not mean untested. This temporary authorization process exists to address the possibility uh, that uh, in certain situations of public health need. And so it went on. But the point is uh, this uh, section 174 is what uh, has been relied on to give temporary authorization to the vaccines. The most recent uh, vaccine, which uh, the third one that was uh, licensed in this way, was only licensed in January of 2021. There has been no announcement of full uh, approval. Um, and David, so therefore this uh, particular professor and this the BBC report seems to be incorrect. Um, and I wonder if that was intentionally incorrect, but aside from that, is it not particularly important to be correct uh, when speaking about uh, the possibility of children taking uh, the vaccines?
2: This is now becoming a pattern. Devi Sridhar did this a few, a few weeks ago. She went on BBC on Newsround and told the children that it was 100, the vaccine was 100% safe. And then that was then taken off the website, um, edited or suppressed by the BBC. And there was a little apology put on that said somebody, they didn't even say who, had said something that was wrong and it wasn't 100% safe, and that was incorrect. They didn't even say it was Devi Sridhar, who's, of course, advising the Scottish government. Um, So what we're seeing here is the the expert voices, the voices that the politicians say, oh, we must listen to the science, we must follow the experts. The experts are making blatant and obvious errors of the most simplistic sort. uh, what are they engaged in? Is it is it PR? Is it spin? Is it is it uh, simply they're not they're not capable of addressing the scientific issues that that are coming up? It's very odd,
0: uh, David. I'm going to say again, you're attempting to use uh, professional um, uh, thinking and common sense to work out what's happening. You can never get to a, the right the right answer using those. Those two things come in at the direction that the government is attacking us and everything falls into place. But to answer your immediate question, um, let's go back to The Guardian. 27th of April last year, the government secret science group has a shocking lack of expertise. So here you are. Even The Guardian have worked out that SAGE was highly secretive. And even when The Guardian did some quite good investigative journalism, to find out who the scientists were on the group. It said the makeup of SAGE reflects an oddly skewed and overwhelmingly medical view of science. Well, we might not even agree with that sentence, but clearly the Guardian knew that something was very, very wrong with this group of people that were going to lock us down for whatever it is, 483 days.
2: Well this is this is the thing um you, there, you need to understand where the advice is coming from you need to understand the world view of the people giving the advice if they're communists if they're interested in totalitarian government if they do not value the individual if they see only groups if they think that state intervention is necessary in order to um, achieve their view of the great utopia that is to come then That's significant, that's going to skew the advice. These people have to be open to scrutiny, to questioning. And they're not. It's all secret. It's all hidden. When one of them was asked about her communist tendencies, she got very indignant with the interview and said, I'm, I'm a scientist. My political views have nothing to do with it. That alone, that statement alone should invalidate her and should get her the sack because that statement alone shows that she's either being deceptive or she doesn't have the sense that God gave her when she was born. Okay.
1: So where does that take us, Mary Jane Newman, David?
2: Right. This this young lady here, uh, flew from Ireland to her native New Zealand. Um, she's uh, essentially a, a a a she's interested in wellness, health, uh, well being, and 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 modifying your lifestyle to increase all of these things. She's a, professionally she coaches people in these areas, so she's, she's someone who's thinking out of the conventional box. She got home to New Zealand and she found that New Zealand had changed, we have a little video.
1: I'm Sam Bailey and joining me on the show today is a very courageous individual, Mary Jane Newman, who is sharing her shocking experience of what happened in a New Zealand managed isolation and quarantine facility. What happened when you first arrived in New Zealand?
4: Yeah, this is when things started to really change. Um, I mean, when I first arrived in the country, it was it was also very apparent that the New Zealand I'd left was not the New Zealand I had returned to. When I arrived, um, Uh, particularly in the facility that I was being um, quarantined in, which was the Sudima Hotel in Christchurch by the airport, you are given uh, uh, some paperwork that they ask you to complete once you've been shown to your room and i looked through the paperwork and uh one of the pieces of paperwork was consenting to having everything that you are having delivered to the hotel searched so yeah i was just like oh wow that's quite full-on because this is my private things that i'm having delivered if i want to have those things i need to consent to having my things searched and I wasn't going to be having anything strange delivered it was just going to be foodstuffs but still it is an invasion of my privacy however one of the other pieces of paper that you have to sign is consenting to have this this PCR test on day three and on day 12 of your stay um, and I just didn't sign the paperwork I believe it was within 24 hours of handing back that paperwork that I started to receive um, Knocks on my door asking me about why I was not consenting to the test.
2: So she, can, she didn't consent to PCR test for all reasons to do with the uh, potential damage that uh, the test can, um, uh, can cause and the huge unreliability. She'd done the research, she knew that the originator of the test said it wasn't diagnostic in any event, so she wasn't prepared to undergo that examination for that outcome. Um, then she was a marked person. She wasn't allowed out into the exercise yard. Um, she was confined to her room and things developed from there.
4: You know, approximately 12.31 o'clock and someone would knock on the door and say lunch and same for dinner. It was usually around about six o'clock, someone would come along and you could hear them coming along the corridor, You know, knocking on everyone's door and saying dinner. So it was six o'clock came and um I could hear them coming along the corridor and I'm like, Awesome, because I'm hungry. I heard the trolley coming and going and nothing got dropped outside my door. And I was like, Oh, maybe maybe I made a mistake. Maybe it was another corridor and I just was a bit confused. Anyway, 6.30 came and still nothing outside my door. 7 o'clock came, still nothing outside my door. And by 7.30 I'm like, I'm really hungry. I haven't had my stuff delivered from my friend. And I also haven't had my meal delivered for the evening. So I go outside my door and there's a soldier sitting outside my door now. I say to him, has dinner been delivered? And he says, yes, it has. And I said, uh, has my dinner been withheld? And he said, yes, it has. And I said, uh, and are you now outside my door to guard my door? And he said, yes, I am. However, what then happened after I again refused to, to consent was a nurse who I believe was one of the senior nurses within the team, a sergeant. From the military and a police officer arrived at my door. So basically, I was I was given I was given a couple of choices. I I consent to the PCR test, uh, and if I don't consent, then I I get moved to a, another room in the hotel, which is even more confined, or I run the risk of being arrested and deported.
2: So the outcome of this was she was put in uh, essentially an isolation wing where she wasn't allowed out of her room. Uh, this was a wing that was uh, reserved for people who had COVID. She was the only person there. And of course, yeah, she was entirely well. Her stay was extended from 10 days or 14 days as it was at the start, 14 days, I think, to 22 days. Um, and uh, right up to the last day, she didn't know if she was being released. Uh, when she finally was, even that was uh, quite strange.
4: Anyway, thankfully the person who did come up um, was a very friendly, very helpful member of the the military team that were there. Um, And as we walked down through the hotel corridors, he was asking me some questions about my time and it became very apparent very very quickly that he and probably most other people had absolutely no idea that I had been kept in that room without being able to go outside for the entirety of my time in there because he said to me when I described it he said that's solitary confinement that you've been kept in and I was like I know he said I thought you were allowed outside you know escorted with with a soldier and I was like no i said i haven't been allowed outside since i arrived i said i wasn't allowed to cross the threshold of my doorway and he's like wow he said that is solitary confinement he said we don't even do that in our military training and i was like i know whoever was calling the shots on this most of the other people in there had absolutely no idea about what was going on and once i arrived into the reception part of the hotel there was at least maybe half a dozen other soldiers who were lined up, waiting, it felt like, to see who this person was that had been in this room that they clearly had heard about but not seen because I wasn't allowed out. Um, And members of the hotel staff, you know, approached me and were like, Merry Christmas, Mary Jane, and I had no idea who they were. It was just the most surreal experience as I left the facility. I'd gone from this person who needed to be quarantined in a room You know that had to be guarded to all of a sudden almost feeling like some kind of pseudo celebrity status um not that it not that i felt like a celebrity but it was just all of a sudden i was just this thing that was on show here she is she's the one felt just weird and odd and sick in some way um it's just like yeah this is the one that we've punished Mm -hmm. here she is you know hasn't she done well
2: so any form of resistance, any form of personal autonomy over your body, any form of uh, decision that you might make over what medical treatment you have is viewed as non-compliance. And non-compliance, in this case, uh, equaled foods being withheld, solitary confinement for 22 days uh, in, a, in a single room, no adequate exercise... Um, and a military guard, all to intimidate uh, and other uh, minor irritations to to disrupt your your equilibrium as well. Um, This is uh, New Zealand in the 21st century, Brian.
0: Incredible, isn't it? The uh, Commonwealth, let's describe it as one of Britain's Commonwealth countries where, of course, uh, freedom and democracy and justice and equality for all of the other key tenets except when uh, COVID appears on the scene. I wanted to just say that that lady telling her story in a very calm, uh, measured and quiet way, um, but actually what she's talking about, as you've you've highlighted, would have had huge impact on most people to, to be locked in a room where you don't know who's in control of you. Somebody can deny you food. Somebody who could put a soldier outside your door. Um, this is worse than... Um, the Soviet system, because at least people in the Soviet system knew what to expect from their government. But we've we've got a New Zealand government which stands on a world stage talking about equality and gay rights, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that they are the complete, complete opposite. So this, this, in my mind, always makes what's happening worse than if we point a finger at Stalin's regime, or the Nazi regime, or the Soviets, uh, because this is done by men and women in uh, suits in warm, quiet offices, as that famous
2: quote goes.
1: Um, right. Look, we're absolutely, sorry, David. Go ahead.
2: It's and it's also happening in the UK. Uh, more on that next week.
1: Um, okay. Well, look, we're right out of time, but I just wanted to, to finish with uh, this, and uh, this is Mo Logic. Uh, and they are a leader, apparently, in uh, in uh, lateral flow testing. Um, and, well, they have, as you can see, they're published today uh, an update. Mo Logic. Mo Logic has become a social enterprise after acquisition by social impact funders and investors. Guess who that might be? Come on, Mike. Uh, well, it's none, none other than George Soros and uh, Bill Gates. Uh, so a group of philanthropic funds and investors led by the Soros Economic Development Fund with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is today, today announcing the launch of Global Access Health, a social enterprise that will seek to expand access to affordable state-of-the-art medical technology through de- decentralized research, development, and manufacturing uh, in and for the global south. Uh, the group has financed the acquisition of Moologic Limited, a world-leading innovator in the development of lateral flow and rapid diagnostic technologies, including tests that can help combat tropical diseases such as dengue and COVID-19. Uh, it, uh, and it goes on to say that Open Society Foundations, founded by its chairman George Soros, is the world's largest private funders of human rights and social justice advocacy groups. The Soros Economic Development Fund, established in 1997, pursues impact investments that are aligned with aligned with Open Society's broader mission uh, and currently holds 35 investments, totaling $300 million. So David, just very briefly, uh, we intend perhaps to uh, expand uh, our test and trace uh, and the success of test and trace with 1.7 million people self-isolating uh, to every part of the world.
2: Well, it's been such a success because then we can have nothing happening in any business anywhere on the globe, uh, unless the little uh, screen on your phone says it can. What a what a unique way of controlling the population that would be.
1: Indeed.
0: Okay. Well, we've we've got um, uh, we've got a sticker to finish with, which was kindly sent to us from uh, Rhyl in Wales. Let's bring it up. So this was a sticker um uh, on the back window of a bus a bus stop uh, where there was a formal uh, sticker saying keep a safe distance but the little sticker that was posted uh, said uh, shows a picture of a lady with a mask she's very blotchy she's got one eye closed she does not look well but that uh, lady is saying to a, another person it means that it's working um obviously talking about the vaccine So pretty powerful little sticker. And it does seem that these uh, stickers that are appearing all over the place are a very good way to get very simple, accurate messages across to the wider public. Uh, Of course, stickering should only be done in an appropriate way. I think it's very important that we say that. Very
1: important indeed. Um,
0: Yeah, go on. Have you got something else? (laughs) I, I was only going to encourage people to make those phone calls, send those emails, put in those freedom of information requests and challenge what you can now see unfolding. If um, if um, Miss Rain or Sarah Branch had 10,000 emails coming a day, I think their opinion for both those ladies, their opinion on the world would change very, very quickly. Um, We have done our bit from the UK column. It's up to our audience to react as they think appropriate. But such an easy thing to do, get those emails going and challenge this uh, particularly vicious system.
1: Um, I'll just say a massive thank you to Drew from Let Me Look TV for the footage uh, from London at the beginning of the program. We're going to be back in a few minutes uh, with some extra if you're on the UK column uh, live stream. Uh, And otherwise, we will see you as usual 1 p.m. on Wednesday.
0: Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye.